Indeed, we do come to the Word of God now, and uh, we always are amazed at Sheridan Hills how, as we methodically teach through the Bible, how God's Word addresses the need of the moment. And I just want you to know that the Bible tells us that His Word is living, and it's active, and it's even sharp like a two-edged sword, so it can cut down deep into who we are and where we are and what we are. And so this morning, open your Bible to Philippians chapter 3. We continue. We're on message 25, and pretty amazing. At message 25, there's four chapters in the, in the book of Philippians, and now we come to the final chapter. We touched on the first verse last week. It's interesting. Chapter 4, verse 1, can some, some translators put it with the previous paragraph, others put it with the next paragraph. We're doing and enjoying a little bit of both. Um, and so uh, this morning we'll be looking at that as well. Uh, this morning the passage is so timely because we see around us the great pain and agony of strife. Now, we always see this. Just yesterday, I was speaking with a church member that has a neighbor that they've become good friends with, and through a course of events in their lives, something kind of happened where they inadvertently stumbled into a conflict. And this neighbor, this church member was saying, it just grieved us that there was this misunderstanding and so we've done everything we can to, to seek to work through this misunderstanding. And, and there's, there's been part of the, one person of the other couple has been glad for that. The other person of, the, of that other couple has been resistant to that. And so there's a, there's a brokenness there where there was a, a friendship forming. Now, any of us that are married know that there is a there's a natural inclination for our marriages to struggle. That's part of living in this flesh. It's part of having a life where we have our own mind and our own heart, and we're not yet united as we will one day be um, in, the, in the final grand scheme of our salvation. But we still go on in this difficulty. Well, this morning we come to a text that shows struggle in the church. And I know that many of us have been part of a church somewhere in our life where maybe there was a great struggle. Maybe there was a great conflict in the life of that church. Maybe it involved one or two people, or maybe it involved the whole church. The Apostle Paul has been dealing with threats against the Philippian church. And just remember with me some of these threats, and I have them outlined here. Hopefully you have your notes in front of you. The common threats to any church could be this, but we see them in the Philippian church. And notice here, number one, the threat of instability. We see throughout the New Testament, we see a call to stand firm and not be unstable. And we see here, notice this, he, we, we, throughout the Scripture, we see the Scripture saying, don't leave the Lord to love the world. Don't leave the Lord to love the world or be thrown off by it. That so often is what we see happen. Look at Acts chapter 11 and verse 23. This is Barnabas's first message um, to the first Gentile church. So uh, the first church of, of people becoming Christians who were not from the Jewish background. So it's the first group of, of, Jew, uh, excuse me, of Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus. 
and Barnabas gives them this instruction. Look at Acts eleven twenty three. When he came and saw the grace of God, so he saw that God was working in their midst. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all. Can you read out loud together what that underlined phrase is? Read it out loud together. To remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. That was very pathetic. I know we're outside. I know you're behind a mask. Let's read that thing out loud together. This is what he was uh, warning them and encouraging them to do. Let's read it. To remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Now, that's a good summary of this issue because we are told as Christians to remain faithful to the Lord. We looked at that last week, that there's some who no longer walk with the Lord. There's some who run away from the Lord. There's teachers who stop teaching the true gospel. There's followers who stop following in the truth. They get away from the true word. And we see that over and over and over again. And we even see that the prophecy tells us that as the time draws near for the return of Christ, there are going to be many who fall away. There are going to be many. There's going to be a great falling away from an, a, a supposed or a, or a, you could say, even a fake following of Christ. Look at Acts chapter 14 and verse 22. And this is after Paul is stoned and left for dead, so you talk about trouble, he goes on preaching in Derby and other nearby cities. And I want you to see this, Acts 14 and verse 21, it starts off, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Now look at verse 22. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to what? Very good. To continue in the faith. In saying that, let's read it out loud together. In saying that, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, my friends, that is not a popular message in this day and time. In this day and time, the popular message is, oh, come to Jesus and all of your problems will go away. And if you really have enough faith, you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Friends, that is not the true gospel. The true gospel is a gospel of struggle and trouble in a fallen and broken world. And there's going to be things that come against true faith and following of Jesus Christ. We would do well to remember that as a church in Sheridan Hills, as Sheridan Hills in the year 2020 in South Florida. We would do well. We don't know what these next few years hold. We see that there are certain things in our society that are becoming more and more unstable and more and more anti-God. And so we see that this little American experiment for the last 250 years has been really easy for Christians in many ways. You go to other places of the world and they've not experienced this kind of insulation from persecution and from trouble. We need to be aware of that. The true gospel is not come to Christ and everything will get easy. The true gospel is, as we're going to see a couple of times this morning, come to Christ and there's aspects of your life that will become very hard. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 58, look what the Apostle Paul writes to those people in this great chapter talking about resurrection. But he finally comes to verse 58. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You know, one of the things that creates a stable Christian is a Christian that is engaged in the work of God. 
when you become disengaged with what God is doing, maybe in your family or in your work life or your neighborhood or the people around you, when you come to a place of not really being engaged in the moving forward of the kingdom of God, you are at risk for becoming unstable in your faith. There's something about being involved in prayer and being involved in the Word of God and being involved in the lives of others in the name of Christ that brings a great stability to your life. Some of you feel icky spiritually. You just feel really just out of touch. You feel very, very unstable in that way. I want to encourage you to humbly come in tune with real ministry in your life doing what Christ has called us to do. And I believe that you will see that gets your focus off of yourself and onto the kingdom of God and his work in the hearts of other people. And then life gets exciting and it becomes far more spiritually stable. Look at Philippians 1.27. We've already studied this a few months ago. He says, we see this issue of instability here a little bit, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are doing what? Standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So you see here that if they want to be stable in the Lord, they need to be standing together as a church family and serving God in his kingdom. Now, notice there below Philippians 1.27, I put a bunch of references there, and that's for your study this week or this evening. Maybe you would take, I hope each Sunday that you take a little bit of time to go back, go back over the note. That's part of the reason that we provide them for you. If you're new to us online, our church studies the word like this in an in-depth way because we believe that God wants us to know what he's saying and that we can come and grow in our knowledge of what he's said. And so I want to encourage you to go look at those and see that we are called to hold on to the Lord, to remain immovable, to be steadfast in the Lord. There's a second threat that's a common threat to churches, and it certainly was a threat to the Philippian church. Notice here, number two, the threat of persecution. And so the very next verse from the one we just read in Philippians 1.27, look at the next part there. In Philippians 1.28 and 29 and 30, it says, and not being frightened by your what? Opponents. You see, there are opponents to the gospel. There are opponents to your walk with Christ. There are opponents to the church. Look what he says, and not being afraid or not being frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. So where there's opposition, it may be a sign that you're one of God's and that from God. Look at verse 29. For it has been granted to you, granted to you, for it has been granted that you, to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Now, that's certainly not a prosperity gospel verse that many people are going to preach, right? But it is truly a theme throughout the New Testament. Look at verse 30 engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. You see, this is being written by a guy who's sitting in prison. 
And so they knew that he was in prison. They were concerned. They had sent somebody to him, and he was sending them, that guy, back with this letter. And he is saying to them, don't give in, don't give out, don't give up. I'm struggling too, but it is all worth it for the life that is to come. In this present time, we're in a broken world that is opposed, but we are coming to the one who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and there will no longer be a struggle then. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 and 13. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, what does it say? Will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters, very interesting, people who act like Christians, but they're not, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to look like this. Hey, why do the wicked prosper so much? Why do the imposters seem to, man, everything just goes well for them. I mean, their, their life just goes on, and they're even preaching the wrong things, but yet somehow they, they just seem to be so, quote-unquote, blessed. And so what Paul is saying or to Timothy is, Timothy, don't go down that road. Don't look at them and wonder, why do they have so much? You know, why, why do they have such a, quote-unquote, healthy church budget? They seem to have all kinds of money flowing in, and they seem to have all kinds of following. Those are not necessarily a sign of godliness. A sign of godliness may be that you are persecuted. So fill this in. Persecution does not mean something is wrong. It may mean something is right. Now, you don't need to go out there and try to be odd for God and try to get persecuted to prove your faith. That's, that's not what you need to do. But I just want you to know that the Bible is saying to us that we are called to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. And in a broken world, there's going to be times that that involves opposition and persecution. There's a third threat. It's on the second sheet. Look what it says. There's a threat of false teachers. We've already been studying this in chapter 3, verse 2. Over the last few messages, these verses have come up. You remember this one? Look at verse 2 of chapter 3. It said, look out for the what? Okay, that was a little weak. Look out for the what? The dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. You remember there was this controversy about those who wanted to circumcise the Gentiles as they became Christians, going back to the law and the foolishness of that. Look at verse 18. We skip down to verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So they used to be with us, but now they're enemies of the cross of Christ. Look at verse 19. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is in their shame with minds set on earthly things. That's what we looked at last week. Don't trade the treasure of God for the trinkets of the world. Don't trade the things that are not eternal for the things that are eternal. This is a theme throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Stay with God. Stay with God. Stay with God. Stay in the truth. You can see these also for further study. Jude, the entire letter is about that. Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 24, those are Jesus' words talking about that. More of Paul's words in 2 Timothy, and then Acts and 2 Peter, an entire chapter 2 is devoted to false teachers. So false teachers are a threat against the church. But now we come to number four. 
the threat of disunity. Now, the interesting thing about the threat of disunity is that the first, the first three were from outside. The threat of disunity is from where? Inside. It's from inside the church. And we see a hint of this in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27 and 2 and verse 14. Notice those. We've already read this one in verse 27. He says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's saying, really act and follow in the mentality, the way, the spirit of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are bottom line of this is you are unified. You're in one spirit, one mind, striving together. Right below that, you are unified. That's what Paul is looking for them to, to, to display. And we see that early on in this letter. So unity is a problem for the Philippians a little bit. Look at Philippians chapter 2. The next verse is down. We see another hint that they have a unity problem. Do everything without complaining or arguing. When I was a kid, that was on the wall in our house part of the time of my years growing up. Do everything without complaining or arguing. When you have three kids, there's tendency that there's going to be complaining and arguing. How many of you grew up with brothers and sisters that sometimes you were complaining and you were arguing, right? We, we often can relate to that. You see it in family life. How about church? I mean, excuse me. What about work life? A fair amount of the time when we as pastors meet with you, we are hearing about the struggles that you have in your work life. Um, sometimes it's family life. Sometimes it's work life. Sometimes you are talking about the fact that, man, the people I work with, they're, they're so difficult to keep on the same page. They so easily think ill of one another, and they dramatize everything. We, I, I work with a bunch of drama queens. You know, I, I, I've heard somebody say that this week. Um, we see that because the flesh is just that way. It's looking out for number one, the me monster. And that come in, comes in conflict with other me monsters. And that winds up being a source of great disunity. So notice here with me this passage. It's in the box on the top of the page, Philippians 4, 1 through 3. Therefore, my beloved brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. Circle those words, stand firm, because that's what we've just been talking about. This is about stability. He wants the church to be stable. He wants the church that he loves to be stable. Sheridan Hills, we must hear this. We must hear this whether you're in the Oak Grove right now. You must hear this whether you're in the living room right now and you're part of Sheridan Hills. We must always stand firm in the Lord. And we stand firm in stability, not leaving the gospel, not listening to false teachers. And here we see not giving in to disunity. And this next ver two verses is so instructive to us. As a kid growing up, I often thought, wow, can you imagine that being called out for 2,000 years in church history? I mean, here we're about to see two names, Iodia and Syntyche. Iodia and Syntyche are two women, and for 2,000 years, we've all known about their baggage. For 2,000 years, we've known about these Christian ladies who are in conflict with each other. Now, listen, friends, don't be one of those people that for 2,000 years, somehow in the annals of church history, we know your name, right? So let's, let's look and see what happened here. I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche 
to agree in the Lord. Can you circle the word entreat? How many times does it show up there? Twice. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Verse 3 goes on. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Well, what do we know about these two women, Yodia and Syntyche? Number one, they were church members. Why do we say that? And we want you to see this. They are not from the outside. They're from the inside. And if you remember with me, back in the book of Acts, and we studied this as we started the book of Philippians, we looked at the context of Philippians. The apostle Paul had showed up in Philippi, and he looked for the Jewish synagogue that would have been meeting to go meet there first. He always went to the Jews first to preach the gospel to them because they had been waiting on the Messiah. So when he went to a new city, and in this case, a Greek city that is there, part of the Roman world, but in the Greek town of Philippi, he goes there looking for the Jewish synagogue. And it's very possible that these ladies were gathered down by the river just outside of downtown, and he went and found them and preached to them the gospel. And it's very possible that they were part of that early group in Philippi that became Christians from the start. And then we see, you know, what happens in Philippi after that? They continue preaching the gospel, and did everything go swimmingly well? No. There arose a furor, and it had to do with the fact that they cast a demon out of a girl. And that the people who kind of owned the slave girl and were profiting off of her demonic possession, they, they were very angry with Paul and Silas, and they arrested them, beat them, and threw them in a prison. And then an earthquake comes, releases them from prison. The officials start to realize oh my goodness, we have beaten and jailed a Roman citizen. We are going to be in huge trouble. And they came to them and they begged them, please leave, please leave our city. And so Paul and Silas eventually would leave. But what did they leave behind? They left behind a newly formed church. And it's likely that these ladies were part of that newly formed church. And so they had labored with Paul. They had labored with Silas. They had labored in the sake of the gospel. So these are not outsiders. These are insiders inside the church. These weren't rebel rousers that came in. These were from within the church family. That's why we as a church need to listen carefully to this. Notice the next thing. Number two, it's obvious that they were believers, that they were not imposters. And we see that at the end of verse 3. Look what it says. Whose names are in the book of life. And that they had labored side by side with the Apostle Paul. That's number three. They were ministry-minded people. So these weren't just some of those church members that come and sit and then leave. These were those church members that come and they come early and they serve and they stay and they help. So this is surprising. This is difficult. Paul would call them out, in fact, because, number four, they were influential. He saw that the church was threatened by these two ladies not getting along. He probably wouldn't have mentioned them if they had been kind of fringe people. But most likely, these were two perhaps matriarchs in the life of the church. And so they were influential. And the Apostle Paul feels like he has to deal with that. 
Look at number five. Their disagreement was probably not doctrinal. It's unlikely that it was doctrinal. Why do you say that? Because every time the Apostle Paul comes across a doctrinal problem, what does he do? He names it. He deals with it. He takes a side, or he corrects everybody that's wrong. The Apostle Paul never shied away from dealing with the truth. But in this case, it likely was not doctrinal, but notice this, their disagreement was probably, fill it in, relational. Most likely, this was a relational conflict between these two women. Now, the Apostle Paul, I think, was probably pretty wise for not getting down into the nitty-gritty of it by a letter and being a long way away. Let me just say this. It is a very bad idea to deal with most interpersonal problems through email or even worse, text or Twitter. You know, we've come to a world that will say anything from behind a keyboard and a screen. Things that you would never say to somebody else to their face. I mean, if somebody comes along and corrects your child here at church and um, maybe they were right, maybe they were wrong, but for whatever reason, you didn't like it. Now, let me tell you, my mom and dad, they looked at everybody and they said, hey, if Andy, Mark, or Kelly do something, y'all go after them. I mean, I expect you to help us parent them. I expect you to help us. So there was, there was not a hesitation with mom and dad in this church. I threw a rock through the window that Kelly uh, Sullivan is standing in front of. And if you're online, sorry, you can't see this. But in the activity center, I threw a rock through that window um, on a Sunday night before church started. And Mr. Paul Evans saw me do it. And he came and grabbed me by the shirt and hauled me over to my father and said, Andy just threw a rock through the window, and I think it was on purpose. So, I mean, you know, I, I, I just, guess what? I got to pay for the window out of my allowance, you know, all those good things, you know, whatever. So I just, I, I remember this. But as we deal with one another, there's going to come things that there can be an offense. There can be an interpersonal, relational offense. And Jesus tells us how to deal with that. The Apostle Paul shows us how to deal with that. Here we're, show, we're shown how a church should deal when the unity of the church is threatened. Now, there's types of church conflict. And I, I was just kind of praying through this this week, thinking about this up very early one morning, thinking through what, what does Sheridan Hills need to hear of some classifications of problems within the church. Notice that the first thing that I would say is most church conflicts, and circle the word most, most church conflicts are over what I call the flesh. This is over our, 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 our nature as a human being appealing to our desires, our wants, our opinions, um, and all of those things. Notice this. I put here the poisonous peas. I spent some time with some of our young men this week, and uh, they were, they're learning to teach and learning to preach. They're learning to share the Word of God. And I just said, guys, we, we have to be aware that as pastors or as preachers, for, for those whom God calls and eventually uh, prepares and puts into that position, there are the poisonous peas. And this will destroy 
any pastor. This will destroy any leader, spiritual leader, any spiritual teacher, any Bible teacher. This should be unwelcome in our hearts, and this should be unwelcome in our church. And some of you have seen these poisonous peas at play in the life of a church. Notice here with me, the poisonous peas of pride, power, position, and prestige. If that is the reason that someone is preaching, if that is the motivation that someone is teaching, danger is right on the horizon. We are to come with the humility of Christ and with the grace of Christ to the picture of preaching the word and teaching the word. How about the next ones here? These fleshly things that come up. Selfishness, racism, tribalism, offenses. This is being easily offended. Immaturity, jealousy, envy. When you, I mean, and let me tell you, the, the world is set up to enhance these things. We see it happening in our society today. We have more communication than ever before, and we have more isolation, loneliness, and offense than ever before. For all of the communication, what it's doing is it's revealing our sinful heart. It's revealing our fleshly tendencies. And so I want us to just notice this, that when you look at the struggles of our current society, even right now, we, we see all of this tribalism. We see all of this race, racism that is just under the surface that is bubbling up. And we see people who simply love to cause strife. I want to just say to you that a lot of what we see happening around the, around the nation right now, it, it's, it's very often people who are coming in from the outside and that they are, they are professional agitators seeking, seeking to whip up the populace into anger with one another. Um, we have seen that in the city of Hollywood at different times. A couple of years ago, we had some difficulty. And my friends with Hollywood Police Department said, you know, we go in there and we're trying to bring peace. We're trying to deal with this. And they said, we find all these people that have flown in from out of state, that have drove in hundreds of miles to come to our city to cause a problem. Friends, this is what happens when our hearts grow cold, when our society thrives on strife. And some, I believe, under the control of Satan and the evil one seeks to do that. Do we have some valid race problems in our nation? Without question. We're a fallen people. We have tribalism within us. We should be pushing back against that. Christians should be standing firm, sharing and showing the love of Christ, speaking the love of Christ. But my friends, when we see these tendencies throughout all of society, we see that those can come into the church as well. And Satan loves to destroy not just the society at large, but he loves to destroy the church. And so he brings in these evil, fleshly motivations. And that's most of the conflicts in the life of the church. But some conflicts are over doctrine. We see that in the New Testament. We see that throughout Christian history. Valid 
issues that are brought up where someone starts to stray and is not as biblical, and we need to deal with that. Now, hopefully, we can deal with doctrinal problems without it becoming a conflict. In fact, that happens all the time in the life of this church. People come into the life of the church, or they're studying, and we sit down and we talk through things, we work through things. Now, that, So just because there's a doctrinal difference doesn't mean it has to turn into a what? Conflict, right? You can work through things having a difference there. Look at the next part that is here. There are some other conflicts. There's conflicts over ministry philosophy. That's the idea of, well, what is our big take on what we're called to do and how we do it? And so ministry philosophy, there are different churches that have different ways in which they go about doing the work of the church. Not every church is going to have the same ministry philosophy. Um, but And there's some ministry philosophies that are, that are more biblical, and there's some ministry philosophies, philosophies that are less biblical. Well, we want to strive for our ministry philosophy to be very in line with Scripture. But even in doing that, there's sometimes going to be differences. And once, once again, like doctrinal things, we may need to make some adjustments there or some patience. Look at the last one there. Some church, church conflicts are over approach to ministry and management. So this is simply about the, the tactics or the strategies of what to do it. And some might say, no, I think we ought to do it this way. No, I think we ought to do it that way. And this is part of the issue of management and leadership. And so sometimes there's legitimate things there where it's not really the flesh. It's just a difference of opinion in that. And it, it can be managed in such a way that it doesn't have to turn into a conflict. Remember this, though, that all church conflict is ultimately the result of sin. Or you can put out there to the side, brokenness. We're broken very often in our way to deal with things, in our way of working through things. And so we have to recognize that that's part of the circumstance in which we live in a fallen world. Well, let's turn to page number three. Some key observations, and I believe that you'll enjoy noticing these with me. Let's read the text again, starting in verse two. He says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Seneca to agree in the Lord. Verse three. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. The first thing I want you to notice right out of the text is, number one, the urgency of Paul's concern. We mentioned this already. The word entreat is repeated. So he says it once, and notice the, dr the drama of this. He says, I entreat Yodia, and I entreat Syntyche. So he's asking for both of them. It doesn't, he doesn't kind of group them together. Look how he could have said that. I entreat Yodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. That's not what he does. He puts that, that word in there. And notice what that word can mean. It can mean beg or to plead. So he's pleading with them. He says, I beg these two women to agree in the Lord. Now look at the number two. Notice the meeting place of their hearts. The meeting place of their hearts, he is calling it to be the Lord. He's not asking them to come together and agree in their ministry philosophy. He's not asking them to come together and agree in their management. He's not asking them to come together and lay down um, and come together in the flesh. He's asking them to let the Lord be their bond. 
let the Lord be their common denominator. Because, you know, maybe they can't come to agree in the management. Maybe they can't come to agree about the offense. But they can come to agree in the spirit of Christ. And there are so many churches that if they would come together and be humbled before the Lord, then this trouble, this trouble and this struggle could find the way toward true forgiveness and unity. Now, this can apply, by the way, to your marriage, to your family, to your parenting, to your brothers and your sisters, whether young or as adults. There's so many things here that if you would just come together and keep your hearts right before God, then there can be a unity together. Notice here with me, Paul knew that if they got right with the Lord, they would get right with each other. And that is so true with a husband and a wife. When you're struggling so much, if a husband and wife can come before the Lord, two of the most opposites that would tend to attack can come and attract um, because of the grace of Christ together. Notice number three. Notice that as we study this and as we look at this, it's apparent, and this is a little bit of a difficult one, notice that the elders and the deacons had apparently either not tried or not succeeded in helping these two women. So um, we don't know whether they hadn't tried. You would imagine that they had, but maybe not. Maybe these two women were pretty scary. Maybe the, maybe the local guys that were pastoring these people were like, I ain't touching that. You're touching I ain't touching that. I ain't going over there. And it took the Apostle Paul from a thousand miles away in Rome going, look, guys, you got to deal with this. You can't let the church be destroyed because of these two women's argument. And that's what was on Paul's mind. He was concerned that they were going to be unstable. He was concerned that they were not going to stand firm thus in the Lord. That's the very next verse. I entreat these two women to do it, and you guys have got to help them. Does that make sense? So notice this. It's part of a pastor's role. It's part of a deacon's role are, are to come and help keep the peace of a bunch of fallen sheep. We're all fallen sheep. We're all broken. We all can be selfish. We all can be highly opinionated. We can all create offenses. But the grace of Christ calls us to work together toward that. And that's number four as well. Number four, notice sometimes we need help in getting along. Have you ever noticed that sometimes you'll be in a conflict with somebody and you're just not making progress? It just seems to keep getting, we keep going back to the same problem, same problem. Keep, keeps happening. We, you know, I'm saying this and he's saying that or she's saying this and she's saying that and they just can't get past it. They can't break past that. Well, this is where we see the beauty of the body of Christ helping one another with that. Now, sometimes that's with a husband and a wife and that's, that may mean that you need to just sit down with a pastor and work through something, hear from something from another perspective and you know have, have another perspective there. Let me just remind you, that there are three sides to every conflict between two people. There's person A's perspective, there's person B's perspective, and then there's God's perspective, right? So, and let me just tell you that if you're hearing about a conflict between two people, until you've heard both sides, you don't know nothing. How many times as a pastor have I listened to one side not known the other side 
and perhaps not been able to deal with it properly. It's just wise that you need to sit down with both sides and hear hear both sides of the story. You know, he's saying, well, she does this and she does that. It's driving me crazy. And, da, 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 da. and you hear that two or three times. And until you hear, hear what she said, you, you, you know, then you sit down with him later and you go, hey, dude, you didn't tell me all of this, 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 this. Oh, well, you know, that's not important. Well, it is to her. I mean, we, we have to be able to do that. And so sometimes we need help. In doing that, there's no shame in that. There's absolutely no shame in that. What there is shame is, is your pride that keeps you from getting help. There's shame in that because it can destroy your life. It can destroy your marriage. It can destroy your, your parenting. It can destroy your family. It can destroy your church. And so what we need to recognize is sometimes we need help in getting along. Do you see this in verse 3? Look what he says. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. He's saying, look, you're all Christians. Two of them are fighting, and I need some of you to help them. Now, this is very practical. You know, I love the Bible. The Bible is so practical for us. The Word of God is so rich for us. It deals with where we are. If you'll just read the Bible, if you'll just start to study the Bible, some folks say as they're coming into the life of their, they said, Pastor, I would love to. I just don't understand anything. I, I feel, Let me just encourage you, stay in the Scripture. Let God speak to you, and He will teach you. Look at the next part that is here. Yes, he says, true help. Uh, or true companion with these women. Now, this is an interesting thing because there's two options on what this exactly means, where it says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. The word true companion there um, is a Greek word that means yoke fellow. So uh, he's, 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 there's one of two things happening here. Either this is a call to all church members to help these two ladies, or number two, there's actually a man whose name is companion or yoke fellow, um, because sometimes we see that. Um, Suzugos, Suzugos is the Greek word for companion. Now, sometimes you meet someone whose name is, is representative of something. Um, quite honestly, I don't know exactly what the name William means. I don't know exactly what the name Susan means, but I do know the name uh, Hope or the name Joy or the name Grace, right? That's a, that's a practical thing that somebody is named after that. How, how about this? The name Carol that became, an became a popular name in England. Well, very often when you talk about a Carol, it's like, it's like naming your child Song. You know, it's a, it's a beautiful idea. Carol is the idea of a, of a song. Um, so some of those are there. But notice that Suzukos could be the name of a practical thing like a friend. And it, it, so this could be a man's name. Now you say, well, wouldn't it have a capital letter? Well, in Koine Greek, all the letters are capital, so you don't know. And that's part of the point here. Either way, whether one man whose name is companion, and he's calling him true companion, or whether this is all the church members who are godly in Christ and true church members, either way, 
there's a call for there to be help. Um, like Suzukos could mean yoke fellow, be the guy's name. It would be like Barnabas, that, whose name means son of encouragement. Or Onesimus, that's a name that means useful. So can you imagine naming your kid useful? This is useful. Um, he's useful. Um, so this, this guy's name possibly could be Suzukos. Now, I, you know, dogs are man's best friend. I, as I was studying this, I thought, man, that would be a cool name if I ever had a dog. I would name him Suzuko, um, you know, or something like that. Um, companion. This is my companion. Everybody go, what? And, you know, that's people do that. Just don't do that with your kid too much. So um, but notice these. Some key observations turn into some important conclusions. The first important conclusion is this. Church unity is a very, very big deal. We need to understand that. Church unity is a big deal. It was a big deal to the Lord Jesus. Look at John chapter 13. Our entire witness depends upon our unity. It was a big deal in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 to the apostle Paul. He says, why is there envy and strife among you? Are you not acting like mere humans? And the inference there is, you're not mere humans. You're children of God. You've been saved with the blood of Christ. You've been given eternal life. You have a new identity in heaven. Don't act like the people that are on the identity of this earth that have not been regenerated in Christ. So this is a very big deal. We see that as Paul calls out these, these women. Notice number two. Church unity affects the stability and health of two things of the church, as well as the members. So the church is healthier when, the uni when there's unity. And listen to this, the members are healthier when there is unity. How beautiful it is when we have that. We need to remember that when we're going through life together. Number three, and here is a warning. This is a warning for everyone in the life of the church. Even, even seasoned and mature Christians can be deceived into a harmful fight. Even seasoned and mature Christians can be deceived into a harmful fight. So it is assumed that Yodia and Syntyche were, were very involved in the life of the church, Perhaps mature people, we don't know that. Maybe they were involved and not mature. Occasionally that's the case. But they were certainly striving together for the sake of the gospel. You know, we ought to just say any of us can get deceived into a fleshly conflict with someone. Notice the number four. The church must work together. This is what we see Paul asking them to do. The church must work together to protect the unity. We must protect the unity together. The first line there is, this is everyone's responsibility. This isn't just the pastor's responsibility. This isn't just the deacon's responsibility. This isn't just the growth group person's responsibility. This is all of our responsibility. And I really believe that in the grand scheme of things, you as an individual in the life of the church will either make it worse the unity of the church worse, or you will make it better by the way that you behave, by the way that you speak. Let me give you some examples. When someone comes and says, did you see what he posted on that? Can you believe he said that? I can't. And you go, oh. Well, at that moment, you can either go, 
yeah, I saw that. I can't believe it. It must be. Yeah. And you can either feed the fire at that moment or you can say, have you talked to him about it? Don't don't post something back. Go talk to him. You see, you have that moment. Maybe it's in a moment of weakness where this person may be in shock or in difficulty or maybe in offense. They say something to you. At that moment, you have the opportunity to either make it worse or you have the opportunity to make it better. Um, I thought about having a flame out here in the center of this nice open space as an illustration and a bucket of water on this side and a bucket of gasoline on this side. Wouldn't that have been interesting? Now, if I picked up the bucket of gasoline, I think that these guys right here would have been running for the back, right? I mean, you can either throw gas on a fire or you can throw water on a fire. And the mature, godly thing to do is that we would protect the unity of the church and the welfare of our brothers and sisters. Now, let me tell you, as our society continues to tumble over these next months and years or decades, if the Lord tarries, that will become more and more important for any healthy church. That any healthy church must remain healthy by learning what Christian maturity looks like when conflict comes that we must deal with things the way Matthew 18 says to deal with things. We must deal with things with humility and grace and directness. We don't always do it perfectly. As a pastor, I don't always do it perfectly. I strive to do that. Pastor Lucas, Pastor Jason, other leaders in the life of the church, the elders, all of us in the life of the church, Jim and Colvin and Bill and Edward and, and others that, you know, when we detect something's wrong, we we seek to go and say, hey, brother, what, what's going on? What's happening here? Let us help you. But we won't always do that perfectly, but I can tell you that that is our heart, to pay attention to what the Apostle Paul has said here. In fact, you will make things either worse or you will make them better. If you're tempted to make things worse, you need to memorize Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 through 19. Look what it says. There are six things the Lord what? hates seven that are an abomination to him now that's a poetic way to make an emphasis so it starts off with six and then it adds one more that's part of poetry there are six things that the lord hates there are seven that are an abomination to him haughty eyes that's pridefulness a lying tongue there's a god of truth he hates lies and hands that shed innocent blood we see that all around us. The world seems to be in conflict all the time over that, from wars to just conflicts, character assassinations, whatever it may be. Verse 18, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil. We've, we've just mentioned that a few minutes ago. There's some whose feet run to make evil. They, they make haste to, to bring about evil. Look at verse 19. A false witness that breathes out lies. And then everyone read the last one together in verse 19. Read it out loud. And one who sows discord among brothers. 
Wow. The Lord says he hates that person. If you're out there in TV land, the video didn't freeze. I want you to think about that. This says that he hates the person that sows discord. Make sure the Lord doesn't hate you. Right? Man, the word of God is, it's jagged. It's sharp. It comes and it cuts. Are we peacemakers? Are you a peacemaker? Are you one of those that says, are you going to let him get away with that? Are you going to let him say that? Did you? Are you going to let her say that? Oh, oh, come on, you've got to respond to that, right? We need to be a people who have so much the heart of Christ that so much sees that God has made us for unity and right relationship that we are committed to that in every way. Amen? Amen. Look at Psalm 133 and verse 1, the end of this entire message. We want to end with this beautiful statement. The opening verse of Psalm 133 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together as we pray. Father, we thank you for the beauty of your word. We thank you for how it applies so vividly to our lives throughout the ages. Lord, from the first century to the fifth century, Lord, to the new millennium, to the second new millennium, over these 2,000 years, your word applies to us. Father, I pray that we would be a people who are committed to the unity that you have designed for us that we would say no to the flesh and that we would say no to false doctrine, that we would say no to division over all kinds of different things that we see differently. And that, Lord, that we would say yes to the grand picture of the love of Christ for one another. Lord, I thank you that there is great unity in our church. I thank you that our church is characterized by great unity and love. Lord, we need to give thanks for that. But Lord, we also need to say, oh Lord, may it always be so. May you help us to deal wisely when there's conflict. May you help us to deal lovingly and gracefully, Lord, when we disagree or when there's been offense. And Father, I pray that in the grand scheme of things, that the people of Hollywood and the people of South Florida, and now as we're just online more and more, that people around us, all anywhere, would see our love for one another and see that we are yours. Lord, I pray for this in the strong name of Christ because I believe that you've told us to pursue this. In the wonderful name of Jesus we ask, amen.